Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Lebrois. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us at nixonfoundation.org or on Twitter at Nixon Foundation. This week, hearings in the U.S. Senate began for Supreme Court nominee Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Today, we look back at the justices President Nixon appointed for the highest court and the challenges they faced in their confirmation process. Our guest today successfully shepherded through arguably one of the most consequential nominees in the past half century, Justice William Rehnquist. He did this not once, but twice, when Justice Rehnquist became Associate Justice in 1971, and again when he became Chief Justice in 1986. Wally Johnson began his career as Special Attorney in the Organized Crime Section of the Criminal Division at the Department of Justice, ultimately leading the Organized Crime Task Force in Miami. He went on to become Minority Counsel of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Criminal Laws and Procedures under Ranking Minority Member Senator Roman Horuska. In 1970, he was appointed by Attorney General John Mitchell as Associate Attorney General responsible for managing the Lewis Powell and William Rehnquist confirmations before the Senate Judiciary Committee. From 1972 to 1973, he served in the White House in the vaunted Congressional Liaison Office. And then from 1973 to 1975, Johnson served as Assistant Attorney General for Land and Natural Resources. Today, he remains a successful lawyer living in Cody, Wyoming. Wally Johnson, welcome. Well, it's good to be with you. These are exciting times. <laughs> I'll say, how did you, I just want to start out, how did, how did you come to join um, the Justice Department and become a liaison for congressional affairs, both at Justice and at the White House? Can you just give me kind of an idea of your background? Um, I was hired into the Justice Department Honors Graduate Program where the Justice Department hires from the top 20% of of certain uh, uh, law schools around the country. Uh, I was hired into the Criminal Division back in 1965. And um, when I went in and met with the Administrative Officer, he said we have several uh, uh, sections here. We have a fraud section and we have an organized crime section. And uh, he said, if you're in organized crime, you're gonna travel. Well, the organized crime section uh, was a derivative of the Kennedy Hoffa Squad, which of uh, 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 which many people will remember uh, was uh, Attorney General Kennedy's uh, highest priority um, uh, issue while he was Attorney General. And I started as an organized crime section attorney, went down to Miami ended up as the chief of the organized crime strike force down there. And when Mr. Nixon was elected in 1968, what happens uh, almost certainly with every uh, transition in government is many of the smart young people up on the Hill go into the administration. I went the other way. I went from uh, being in the department up to work on the Senate uh, criminal Laws Subcommittee, where we processed the Organized Crime and Racketeering Act of 1970, uh, a high priority for Mr. Nixon. And then, uh, after a year on the Hill, came back into the Justice, Justice Department uh, as uh, in charge of the legislative section, and I was an Associate Deputy Attorney General, which means essentially that I uh, was an adjunct to the Deputy Attorney General. He had three at three associate deputies then. And one of the first things that happened uh, for and with me then is that 
uh, Rehnquist and Powell were named to, to the court, uh, and John Mitchell called me, who was the attorney general, and said, uh, and I still remember this, because there was a big bong on my phone that rang when the attorney general was calling, Bill needs an attorney. And uh, uh, I became directly involved in that activity uh, with that telephone call. As it turned out, Bill Rehnquist had been managing the prior four appointments. You'll remember that Mr. Nixon, in his memoir, said one of the most significant and proudest things he did was to name uh, four members to the Supreme Court, Berger, Blackman, uh, Rehnquist, and Powell. And uh, uh, we're seeing that same um, uh, mindset play out in more contemporary appointments. Um, so that's a brief overview and how I got involved. What attracted you um, to working in the uh, Nixon-Mitchell uh, Justice Department? Well, there are two, there are two ways to answer that. Um, on the one hand, I'm a product of the Justice Department. It's the biggest, the, the biggest law firm in the world. Uh, and has the most prestigious client. So many, many bright young attorneys are attracted into the Department of Justice, and the honors program is the way in which uh, the department is able to compensate them consistent with competitive salaries and other, um, with other opportunities like other major law firms. So uh, uh, I'm naturally attracted to the Justice Department. The other um, interesting piece of it. Um, uh, I am a great admirer of John Mitchell. John Mitchell was like the prime minister. Uh, there was excitement around the Department of Justice, and the excitement came from working uh, working around people who were attracted to work on the major issues of the day. Remember, Nixon was elected in '68 based on uh, his desire to, uh, based on a law and order uh, uh, plank and based on his uh, uh, pledge to end the Vietnam War. So where are you going to deal with the law and order plank? Uh, you're going to do it in the Department of Justice. Um, so that's why it was such an exciting time uh, for me. I think of it, I think of those Ten years I was in Washington from 65 through 75 as, um, as my golden years. They were exciting times. They were smart, dedicated people uh, with whom I was working, and uh, we were making a difference. Going to judges now, um, when Nixon came into office in 68, um, did he have a judicial philosophy? And, and let me, let me kind of add on to that. Today, you know, you often hear about the um, the Federal Society and how President Trump has picked from a list of judges um, that the Stephen Calabrese and the uh, the Federal Society um, uh, gave him to choose from. Um, did Nixon? Uh, did President Nixon come in with a certain judicial philosophy like originalism um, in 1968? Was that even was that even on the 
um, was that even on the mind of more Republican or conservative-leaning lawyers? Not to my knowledge, but let me put this in perspective, uh, if I can. Um, The story story that is playing out in the Senate today, and this is um, uh, the second day of uh, Kavanaugh hearings, uh, began uh, in the uh, mid-1950s with President Eisenhower. President Eisenhower appointed two what he thought were um, uh, outstanding nominees to the Supreme Court. Both of them let him down. One was Earl Warren. What happened between the the mid-1950s and 1968 is that Warren showed his true colors in the sense that he moved the court as Chief Justice to a very liberal-leaning position. Uh, uh, Bill Douglas was on the court. Abe Fortas was on the court. Hugo Black was on the court. And there were a number of decisions, one of which I heard discussed this morning uh, in the Kavanaugh hearings on television, uh, the Miranda decision. And they were viewed as anti-law enforcement. Uh, So all of a sudden, the court became an issue, and Nixon pledged in the campaign uh, to change uh, uh, the approach taken by the Supreme Court. To my knowledge, um, there were interest groups, but there were certainly no dominant interest groups. And as I have read and learned and know about the process of selection, because there's an awful lot that's been written about it, Um, It was more ad hoc. Uh, He and the Attorney General, uh, John Ehrlichman was usually involved, would find their way to uh, 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 qualifying nominees. Um, And uh, that's uh, how we come to a point where, and I think Rehnquist was almost an afterthought as a nominee um, uh, but was possibly his most significant appointee. Um, and uh, he and John Mitchell were working hand in glove on selecting them. Uh, there were a whole plethora of, of people that were uh, up submitted, uh, two of whom uh, didn't make it. If you look <laughs> at the hearings, you'll see that there are many young staff people working behind the senators. Um, Back in 1968 and 69, I was one of those uh, and uh, worked with staff people from Senator Kennedy and Senator Hart. Um, uh, There were a number of very liberal uh, senators and they had very qualified staff people. Uh, Jim Plug is one of them, Ben, ben Wise is another one. And I can still remember that we were uh, working very, very collaboratively, but we had different uh, uh, goals in mind um, uh, in terms of how we were supporting the staff. So I was, I was there on Hainsworth and Carswell, but one of those faces behind the senators Right. With the whole selection process and vetting process of, uh, of potential Supreme 
court nominees. Um, it was interesting in 2000, in 2005, when Chief Justice Roberts was selected, um, it was almost as if they, the Bush administration wanted to, um, you know, choose the uh, cleanest nominee possible, not only in terms of his own personal reputation, but also his, uh, his the opinions that he gave before uh, the Supreme Supreme Court, and um, also the uh, public relations skills. A lot of times, uh, of a um, of a uh, of a judicial nominee uh, comes into comes into play as well. Um, this is specifically the case after the whole um, um, in the 1980s when uh, Justice or uh, Judge uh, Robert Bork was, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, borked and and um, mm. you know and and had to withdraw his name from the uh, or was um, was blocked from even um, even becoming a Supreme Court justice. What was the political climate of the late 1960s, uh, early 1970s, when um, when the justices you uh, you helped get through Powell and Rehnquist? Was it as divisive as the um, as the 1980s or even today um, in the in the Kavanaugh in the Kavanaugh hearings? Well, um, the short answer is no, and I can explain why. Uh, I'd like to <laughs> I'd like to answer the question by uh, calling attention to the fact that when John Jay was named Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, he was named two two days later. He was confirmed, and two days after that, he was on the bench. Uh, without any dissent, without any real attention. So we've gone to, uh, in the confirmation process, we're looking at an evolution, which follows the culture and follows the political climate in which we live. I heard Senator Graham this morning say uh, to the nominee, um, uh, tell your children, and these aren't, this is an exact quote, tell your children uh, not to be discouraged. It's the climate in which we live. The climate in which we lived in 1968 through 1975 um, was where there was an evolution of political attitudes among the states in such a way that while there were only about 35 Republicans in the Senate, there were closer to 60 conservatives in the Senate. So we're looking at a, a situation, Jonathan, where um, the philosophic base was very strong, but the partisan political base was not as refined. And what we've seen over the last 40 to 50 years is an evolution where <laughs> two things are working in apposite. One is the political base is becoming more uh, uh, clear, focused, uh, but um, uh, the partisan base is so locked in uh, that it's hard for them to um, uh, actually show their show their show their support anymore for a candidate the way we were able to do back back in that. Uh, uh, era uh, with President Nixon. So when Rehnquist was confirmed, just to put an end to this part of the conversation, uh, we only had 30, 
233 Republicans because there were two Easterners that were more liberal, but we had all those Southerners built around Jim Eastland, who was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee from Mississippi. And they were as solid behind the president as anything you would ever want to find. So we had a coalition that was built uh, in support of uh, uh, Justice and then Chief Justice Rehnquist. The um, reality is that but for tying him together with Lewis Powell, who was from Richmond, Virginia, uh, he probably would have dangled forever and not been confirmed uh, because he was young and he was brilliant uh, and the uh, partisan Democrats did not want him and they could have used the tools of the Senate to block him. But we were able to take advantage of the reality that Justice Powell was well-liked and loved and a very distinguished legal uh, per person uh, to help push Rehnquist through. Going into each of the nominees, just kind of their profiles, um, and I'll start off with um, Justice Lewis Powell. Uh, who was who was Lewis Powell? I remember him well, uh, but I only got to know him during the confirmation process. He was a perfect gentleman. If you if if you ask me who was Lewis Powell, I'd say he was a perfect gentleman. But he was clearly more than that. Um, he was a uh, the president of the American Bar Association. He was active in the profession. Uh, he had a great. Uh, uh, academic record, and he was a partner in a major um, uh, Virginia law firm. So uh, he was a candidate that had been approached any number of times because I know Nixon uh, was to have been looking for a Southerner. That's where things went uh, catawaller with Carswell and Hainsworth. But with Powell, he was able to find that uh, perfect candidate, and Powell agreed at the last minute, uh, but maybe not, uh, that's not the right way to say it. He agreed after much um, personal anguish to be nominated, and he was a very good justice, uh, more moderate uh, than Rehnquist uh, proved to be, but a perfect gentleman. And As it turned out, I'm sorry, go ahead. Rehnquist Rehnquist was nominated before him, so in the cycle of things, to get to Powell, uh, the Senate had to deal with Rehnquist. And that was one of the um, uh, benefits of having the chairman of the Judiciary Committee supporting your candidates. You had mentioned um, Rehnquist's youth and brilliance. Um, can you give us an idea of what his background, you know, how did he, how did he go so high at the Department of Justice at such a young, young age, and how did, he, how did he really sharpen up his scholarship? Well, he was, um, he was the Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel. And for those of your listeners who may not understand the structure of the department, the Office of Legal Counsel is just what it, just what it says it is. Uh, it wrote opinions uh, analyzing the president of the United, analyzing the legal actions of the president of the United States. 
So whenever Bill, whenever a nominee was appointed, the guy that uh, vetted the nominee was Bill Rehnquist. And I can still remember Bill, who had a bad back, even at his um, young age, and I'm approaching it uh, almost twice that age now. Uh, he would sit in a recliner uh, surrounded by law books. Uh, but uh, he came there because, first of all, he gradu graduated from Stanford and he was at the top of his class. Uh, coincidentally, met Sandra Day O'Connor there and they were friends for life. But he ended up practicing mostly appellate law in Phoenix. And he would receive case referrals from other lawyers, and he was a very good appellate lawyer. But he was also involved um, politically in political activities. And Dick Kleindienst, who ended up as the deputy attorney general and subsequently attorney general, uh, championed his appointment with John Mitchell during the uh, transition discussions up in New York. So uh, Rehnquist's patron was Dick Kleindienst, and John Mitchell became his patron because he recognized the quality of the work he was doing. Uh, and that's sort of how he ended up. If you were to ask for a one uh, uh, phrase description of Rehnquist, I'd say he was a family man. Uh, the night that he was confirmed uh, after this bitter, bitter battle, um, he went to a basketball. He went to a basketball game uh, with his kids, for his kids. Uh, the rest of us went out and had a drink uh, and breathed a sigh of relief. But Bill was dedicated to his family uh, in every way. Very down to earth. Uh, very caring and very, very loyal in every way. You had mentioned. Can, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just. I was just going to say you had mentioned earlier about um, the call with um, the call by John Mitchell, Attorney General Mitchell, uh, to you saying that Bill needs a lawyer. That being Bill Rehnquist. Um, could you take us through your role? Um, in his, in through the appointment process, through the uh, confirmation process of, of associate justice, and how did you, how did you personally um, uh, prep justice, the future justice? Well, uh, I see we're actually getting close to the end of this conversation, so um, I'll be reasonably brief. Um, lots of people were involved in preparing Bill and working with Bill. I had a role. My role was to coordinate between the leadership of the Judiciary Committee and the Attorney General and the White House Legislative Office to bring whatever um, strength we could to support the candidate in the process. Um, I was running back and forth from the Hill, reporting to Mr. Mitchell, coordinating with Bill Timmons and Tom Korologos going back to the Hill and making sure that everybody who had a vested interest in this process knew what was going on and could uh, 
contribute. Now, as it turned out, I also was in touch with Mr. Nixon, who was not a hands-off kind of guy. Uh, I had met him because when I worked up on Capitol Hill, David Eisenhower, his son-in-law, was my intern. And so back in, I think, 69, 68, I got to know Dave and Julie quite well. And so when Mr. Nixon wanted a direct report, I didn't call him, but he would call me and uh, confer. Now, I was listening. I wasn't telling him, but I was also, I was telling him in the sense that I was telling him what was going on. And it all became a question of, just like you see Chuck Grassley today, trying to keep focus on the candidate, make sure that everybody understood his strong characteristics. Same deal back then. Uh, without the uh, uh, people in the back of the room yelling. Um, and it was easier because there was a civility in the Senate then that doesn't seem to exist today. How did the um, Rehnquist, you said, was considered the more controversial nominee uh, than Lewis Powell? Um, and you had mentioned earlier kind of tying them together and having, um, having Rehnquist uh, kind of run fullback on the, uh, on, the Powell, on the Powell nomination. How did the, how did the legal community and, um, and the press react to the... Uh, to the nomination process of, uh, of Rehnquist? Um, no one really knew him. Um, uh, now, uh, he became well-known, but the fact is, uh, if you were to have a, a, a media meter, <laughs> a media meter on Lewis Powell, the legal community would 95% uh, know Lewis and 40% no bill. Why? Part of it was age and part of it was the involvement in uh, the general community. Bill had the highest rankings. He was brilliant. Um, but the world didn't know him. So as the nominations proceeded, the Senate Judiciary Committee insisted on processing Rehnquist before they processed Powell. Well, we had this massive support behind Powell that pushed Bill through the process. And uh, I have to thank Chairman Eastland and Roman Horusky for that. They're the ones that made that happen. They, they resisted the pressure to take up Powell first. And the same on the, on the Senate floor. Uh, we uh, avoided... Um, all of the legislative devices that, in my mind, still make the Senate great, uh, made the Senate great as a body of deliberation uh, because there was so much pressure to move uh, Lewis Powell forward. And they both got confirmed, which, of course, um, was exactly what President Nixon uh, was looking for and exactly what allowed him to say in his memoirs <laughs> that the one of his greatest triumphs was having those four Supreme Court nominations confirmed. Uh, we're running out of time, I know that, but 
the hearing in the mid-80s, which elevated Bill to the chief justice uh, position, was, again, part of this evolution of um, uh, in the confirmation role of the Senate uh, because it set up the appointment of Scalia and uh, Bork. If you'd flipped those two appointments, it would have been entirely different in terms of uh, how Bork had been processed. But that could be the subject of another call at another time. Final question. What can Brett Kavanaugh and the Trump administration uh, learn from the Rehnquist experience? I think that what they have learned from the Rehnquist experience is the importance of preparation. What I've been watching Judge Kavanaugh do is feel the evolution of questions brilliantly. Um, uh, the role of the Senate and of the executive in defining the um, not just intellectual qualifications of the judges, which almost, I have to say, uh, to get on the Supreme Court anymore, you, you have to be uh, almost certainly an appellate judge. Uh, I'd be amazed if anybody was nominated that did not have that kind of background by either party. But uh, the murder boards, uh, the preparation, um, uh, the way in which uh, uh, you brief every senator, those all came out of the Nixon uh, experience, uh, without question. And um, uh, uh, I can read it as I watch the hearings today, um, going back to that time when we were very, when Mr. Nixon was very, very successful in dealing with the court. Um, and so there you have it. Our guest today was Wally Johnson, Associate Attorney General and Assistant Attorney General of the United States during the Nixon administration. Our topic today was his work to successfully shepherd Supreme Court Justices Lewis Powell and William Rehnquist through the United States Senate. Wally Johnson, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. This is Jonathan Mavroidis signing off.